Hey, you're listening to Can I Say That? with Brenna and Austin Blaine. Hey everybody, this week we have a conversation with Michelle Lang Raymond for the second part of our racism series, where we discuss if and what the church should do about social justice specifically regarding racism. Normally I would ask why is this a difficult question or difficult topic, but I think given the social climate, it's pretty self-explanatory of why this is a difficult topic. So instead, I I believe you had some rhetorical questions that you were hoping for us to think about. Yeah, so one of our friends who was on the last episode sent in some questions that I thought were really, really good, especially for, I want our white listeners, and especially if you are a person in ministry, specifically a leader in ministry, I would love for you to think about as we listen to this next episode and just ask yourself, okay, what honestly, what would what would my answers be to this these questions? So the first one is when you are searching for a church, when you're, you know, what we call church shopping, do white people consider predominantly black churches or Hispanic churches as viable options? Why or why not? I know for me, that has never been something I've thought about as an option. And I've really had to wrestle with why is that? And then the second and final question that I would love for you guys to wrestle with, especially if you are in leadership at a church, is are you emphasizing reading and listening to Black, Hispanic, and Asian theologians in your church or in your ministry? Why or why not? As you wrestle with these questions, I want to invite you guys to have a conversation with us. If you want to discuss this with someone else, Feel free to shoot us a message on Instagram or to our email, and we'd love to talk about it with you. I hope you lean into today's episode. I am super thankful for this conversation and how much I learned through it. All right, so diving right in, is there a biblical precedent for churches to engage in the social justice surrounding race? Oh my gosh. That's not a big question at all, Brenna. The short answer is yes. I'm going to take it from race a little bit and just say that there absolutely is a social justice. First of all, I think the word justice appears just under the word love mm-hmm. in terms of how many times in the Bible. Words, the word justice or synonyms for justice appear in the in Scripture just under uh, the number of times the word love or synonyms for the word love do. Mm-hmm. And so we can gather out the gate that justice, equity, rightness, righteousness uh, matters to God. So, yeah, I, the the one narrative that I think draws the point the best for me and it's a really long story is the one around Tamar mm. in the Old Testament. I think it's in the book of the book the Kings books. I could be wrong. I was never good at Bible trivia. <laughs> but it's the story where the sister with a with a with a daughter, you know, she gets manipulated mm. and taken advantage of sexually. And what happens is she gets taken advantage of, she gets abused and assaulted. And then what happens is the men sort of um, formulate their excuses and um, and their remedies. And what happens is one person's intent is to remedy the assault with revenge type. Mm. Uh, with a revenge-type answer, so the the, the, uh, the murder, the annihilation of, of the assailant. 
But then there's another part of the story where it says what happened to Tamar is actually more important than what happened to the abuser, right? Mm-hmm. And that Tamar, Tamar was brought into the house of her brother, and that, that brother gave his first daughter Tamar's name, which is an indication that there's some redemption mm-hmm. and that there's some honor restored back to her. So it's not just enough to sort of find and accuse the oppressor in the story, you also have to redeem the person that was wronged, mm. right? You can't just let it be revenge on, on the wrongdoer. You also have to restore the person um, whose life was reshaped by injustice. Mm. And so there's, there's this, there's in that narrative, a couple things we see is he brings her into his house. Uh, he, get, he, he, he covers her, restores her, gives her another start, mm. Right. But more importantly, he names his first child after her again, which is to say to a person who's been disgraced and to a person who has lost so much, he tries to give uh, new hope and redemption to them. And so that story is hard to read because it because of how it starts. And there's oh, there's another thing about that story. The king and the father in that story has a, is in a position to do something important and he decides not to. So the person who actually is in power decides not to, mm-hmm. decides he's just going to let it play out and just going to let it be what it is. And kind of he hopes everybody gets over it. And I think that's an important story. That's an important part of that story um, because we see that in our society even now. We say it all the time. We see people who are in positions of power who just say, you know, that was wrong, but let's just hope for the better. Mm. And I don't, And if I were to say it, I would say that that person represents, like, even the church. So many times, church people, and the church is an institution of power whether people like the church or not. Mm. So many times, church people say, that was wrong, but let's just all try to do better, and it'll just all, it'll all be okay. Mm. That's not, that's not true, and I don't think it's actually a God lens on justice. I think justice is to recognize when something is wrong and with your power, do all that you can to make it right. So yes, I think there's absolutely a biblical religious mandate that justice, matters of justice, matters of social justice are at the heart of true religion. I mean, the Bible even talks about how like true religion is to care about the widows and the orphans. That's Mm -hmm. a matter of justice, right? To care about people who have been who have been reckoned to have to to I don't know how to say it people who have now found themselves in unfortunate circumstance through no fault of their own the bible says the best religion is to make sure that they stay that life stays fair for them mm-hmm. right make sure that life stays equitable for them so in all this fancy stuff that we do you know if if justice is not at the heart of the gospel that we do then i i think it's a um an unfinished gospel mm-hmm. it's an un it's not it's not a full gospel mm-hmm. Right now, something interesting that I think you've probably seen as well that I'm noticing is there there are a lot of people who think this issue of race and racism is political and mm-hmm. therefore shouldn't be talked about in mm-hmm. the church. Mm-hmm. How do we keep this separate from politics? So, yeah, I would push on that because this is a far—I'm going to go—I'm going to say it, make a far-fetched claim here, right? The moment that this country, which considered itself to be a country founded on Christian principles by people who were religious people, even though Mm. they were wanting religious freedom, the moment that this country decided to create a system that classified people based on the color of their skin, 
for the sake of establishing an economic an economic system by which we could build this country. The moment we did that, you made race political. Mm-hmm. Like you made race a mm-hmm. political thing. Race became a political thing. The moment that um, people said, if we declassify certain people, then we can also um, manage the the the, fina- the financial business of this country. The financial business of this country is political. Right. The systems of this country are political and how you classify people in that system makes people and makes race political. Mm. So to say, can we keep those things separate is like, well, you could (laughs) you could have way back in 1619. Mm. You could have, but you didn't. Right. Somewhere in our formation, we made race political and we made racism a part of the fabric of our country mm-hmm. and a part of the fabric of our institutions and one of the things that I've been saying honestly lately Brenna is that people of faith made a decision to do that and we have to be honest about that I say we because I sit here as a black woman but I'm also a Christian and so on a regular basis and I hate it on a regular basis the ancestry of my faith has to wrestle with the ancestry of my race. Mm. And I have to accept that the ancestors of my faith did a horrible thing to the ancestors of my race. And I can't let them off the hook Mm. for that. I don't care what they were. I can't let them off the hook for it. I can't let my faith off the hook. That happened. And so, um, so I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know about you or, or your listeners, but one of the things that black Christians, uh, encounter all the time, from other black people is how do you exist in a faith Mm. that was oppressive and you know for years i think we've tried to argue that and just sort of turn people to jesus so to speak but the truth of the matter is that's a fact Mm. that's a fact and you and 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 you have to differentiate your faith from the oppressive tactics that it used at one point. But it's a but it's a fact that we just have to reckon mm. with. What can Christians who do not support, let's say, the Black Lives Matter organization, do right now to support people of color? And in your opinion, is the hesitancy surrounding the saying Black Lives Matter merited because of the organization and what they believe? Yeah. So I haven't done a deep dive into Black Lives Matter, the organization, mm-hmm. this year. I did it when it kind of first started. But I, from my understanding, I think it has morphed with some new ideas, you know, that it didn't initially start with. And so it, do I think it's okay if people want to hesitate on on completely going all in with the organization Black Lives Matter? I don't think that's wrong. I, I think it's funny that people say, well, I don't want to I don't want to get down with Black Lives Matter because I don't agree with everything that's in their um, plan. Right. Their Mm -hmm. plan of actions or even in their rhetoric, while at the same time, we all constantly support or utilize organizations, services, corporations, businesses that have questionable practices, and we just find it in ourselves to get over it, mm. right? So I don't know why you can't do that with Black Lives Matter. If, like, if there's things in the Black Lives Matter organization narrative that you don't agree with, then say that. Mm. That does not mean you have to dismiss what the Black Lives Matter movement is about. The Black Lives Matter movement is about injustices done done towards black people, disproportionately done towards black people. And I think you can march, vote, protest, speak about that, even if you don't fully agree with everything that Black Lives Matter, the organization, has to say. I think you can. And and I think when we don't, we're refusing to let ourselves be smarter than than that. 
You know what I'm saying? Like we're, we're you're smarter than that. You can you know how to. I'm not saying cherry pick, but you, you it's not necessary to throw everything out because you don't agree with every mm-hmm. every single point. It's not necessary. Well, let's be smarter than that. So yeah, I, I that's what I think. You said what? What was your first part of that question? What can people who do? What can Christians do to support people of color if they don't support the Black Lives Matter organization? Uh, okay. Well, one, I don't think supporting black people is contingent on mm. supporting the Black Lives Matter organization. So when it's those things do not go hand in hand. Um, like I said, I sit here and I I'm pretty studied in this stuff mm. and I haven't reviewed Black Lives Matter, the organization in months. So that doesn't make me less committed to the idea of Black Lives mm. Matter. Right. So I would say that I would say that would be one thing is that those things are not. They're not married to each other. And I think one of the ways that, that people can ally with black folks in this work is to just get better at speaking about speaking more comprehensively about what Black Lives Matter as opposed to just chanting mantras. Mm. Right? Like you have to practice what do those words mean because people are gonna come against you and not gonna agree with you and you have to have something better to say or something better to add to their education than just a repetition of the mantra. I'm not saying that like it's easy. That takes work. That takes effort. That means you got to read things differently. You have to watch different things. You have to pay attention to what's going around you that's not necessarily of your um, native culture. You have like you have to become more astute in other cultures. So that's work. But I think it's a work that people just it's a, it's a timely work people we have to do this work mm-hmm. right now like we can't get we can't get by with like I, I before we started i was telling you about a young lady who she posted something pretty you know that was a pretty strong statement for her she's a white woman she's about 22 years old maybe and she posted on her facebook page none of the bible was written by white men and that's a really strong statement for somebody like her who comes from a conservative white kind of rural background right that's a strong statement for her to make publicly and so i applauded her for making that statement. But then when somebody came against it, her response, and they came against it rather negatively, you know, her response to them was essentially just, hey, be nice. Mm. And my point in this, to answer your question, is to say, you got to do better than just coming back with be nice. Mm. Right? You got to come back and say, hey, let me help you understand why this statement is important. Right? And that takes work. It takes work. And so I think one of the things, the most important thing you can do right now is, um, as the Bible says, study to show, study to show yourself approved, rightly dividing truth. Right? Mm-hmm. Not just the word of truth as in the Bible, but rightly dividing truth, period. And so I think that's something that, that folks can... It's going to be a long ride. Yeah. Like This is going to be a long, deep ride. And you got to get past just shouting mantras. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, you know, the predominantly white churches, because we're here in the Pacific Northwest, Mm -hmm. where there is only a a small amount of diversity. Should predominantly white churches strive to have a diverse leadership team, or should they strive to have people of color, their voices on their stages on Sundays? Yeah. I care less about what's on your stage than I do about whose voices are at the table Mm. of decisions. Right. Because and I say that because I've been the black woman on the stage and I've had no say in anything else. So your utilization of my talent and my looks, as we're saying right now, that's kind of crumbs. Right. Because I I would say I went to this conference one time. um, I won't say the name, (laughs) but I went to this conference one time and it was huge. It was solidly like 7000 people. It was big. 
and um, for, for like three days. And one of the days, almost going on two days, but at least one of the days, we had gotten to, you know how at conferences they do like the 8, the eight o'clock thing, mm-hmm. the 10 o'clock thing, the noon thing, the, you know. So they had done all of these general sessions, and I'm not making this up. Every voice, every speaking voice on the microphone was a man. Every single one. And it was going on two days, right? Now, mind you, on the flyer, you know, they got pictures of the women who were doing whatever. And But with the exception of one guy who was um, from India, who was from India, every voice that had spoken was a white man. And I'm on the worship team, and I'm leading. I'm leading some of the songs on the worship team, right, by invitation of a friend of mine. And so we went backstage at one point, and I said, do you even notice, my friend who's a white guy, I said, do you notice that all the speakers are men and that all but one of them have been white men? And um, and he said, no, I didn't notice. Mm. And I said to him, I was like, you got to get better at noticing that. Like, you got to get better at paying attention to that, right? And he said, does it matter that you're on the worship team? Like, worship is like 30 minutes of the general session and people are following your lead as a worship leader for 30 minutes. It's like, that's a pretty long time for you to be the voice that's in charge. I said, I'm up on stage singing lyrics that I didn't write, mm. right? And singing, literally singing songs, right? And I'm not minimizing the work of worship leaders. But me being on stage singing words of someone else is not the same as me standing flat-footed and expressing my thoughts, my sentiments, my my narrative that is not the same mm. right and i said to my friend i was like were there any women and people of color on the design team he said i don't think so so it makes total sense mm. it makes total sense it makes total sense that all the people that you have speaking are men and and mostly white men it makes total sense that i'm looking at what i'm looking at because you didn't have those voices at the table i just i've Okay, confession, I've watched Hamilton now three times since Saturday. And so that room where it happens Mm -hmm. song, if you don't have people in the room where those decisions are made, if you don't have people in the room where those decisions happen, Mm -hmm. then what's going to come out in your product um, is is the absence of the voice in the room. You're not not suddenly going to have... Putting a, a black woman on stage or a black man doesn't matter. Putting them on stage does not add their narrative does not add their voice to what you're doing Mm. it just adds a look right and i'll be honest with you most times black people in those spaces we just have to assimilate to the to the dominant culture anyway so you're not even really getting the full expression probably of that person's culture whatever that means like Mm -hmm. and there's i'm not saying that we're all the same but most of the time in a big white church you just sort of have to assimilate to survive so you're not even getting the fullness of who they are, mm. right? You're just getting their version of themselves in your space, unless they're in the room where it happens. Mm. And so, yeah, even in a even in a state like Oregon, in a city like Portland, where where the percentage is like six percent or less um, of black people, I don't know what the general number is for people of color, but even in a state where that number is so low, you still, I think, it's still important to do that work. Why? Because you still make your people better, your white people better by lending to them or giving to them the diversity of voices and the diversity of narratives, right? You still make your people better. I started a theater company and one of my students, my, my Warner 
Pacific University graduate students, he made a donation recently, mm-hmm. right? And um, made a, it was a pretty big donation for a recently graduated college student. I'm like, I know you're broke. Yeah. So I don't, so he made a really big donation and he, he sent me a voicemail and he said, because of you and your work, my life is blacker than it's ever been mm-hmm. and it's more beautiful than it's ever been. And he is as white as they come. I'm not kidding. He is he is white boy, long hair, guitar playing, mm. flip-flop wearing, coffee sipping, Oregon guy. But for him to say, my life is blacker than it's ever been, and it's more beautiful than it's ever been. He, that doesn't change who he is, mm. but it changes how he sees the world. And so for that reason, yeah, it's still important that you do diversity work. It's mm. still important. And maybe not have... I'm not saying you must hire a person of color, right, if, that, if they're really just not represented in your congregation. But I am saying maybe you need to bring in other people um, that meet the need anyway, mm. right? And let me, can I just say this too? Um, it's really important when you do this work that you are finding people and that you are partnering with people who do not feel the burden of assimilation, mm. right? Again, because what happens so often is people of color come into these large white spaces and they basically become black faces in white spaces, right? And what happens is in order to, to, to just manage, they just assimilate. They just, they just sort of gravitate towards whiteness mm-hmm. um, because there's not enough people there who understand their culture, who understand their background, who understand the narrative of their race. And so what happens is they just assimilate. They get as close to white as possible. And if that happens then you have lost the value of them being there. And so it's really important that either you find people who can come and still be the fullness of who they are, or as often as possible, you are releasing them to be the fullness of who they are. You're constantly saying, don't feel like you have to change anything about you. When I first came to my church, big white church in Portland, big white hippie church in Portland, and I came and I was just coming to check it out, and they had this coffee bar like in the lobby, which is not a thing in black church, but I love that it's a thing in white church. So I come here, grab my coffee, got my Bible. I sit on the back row, first time going to this church, because I just want to check them out. I just, you know, I know that I've heard of this church, and I had a friend. I have a friend who goes there, and he's like, I want you to come and maybe help do some stuff at this church. So the first time I go, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go, and I'm going to check them out. So I get my coffee, have my Bible, I sit on the back seat, the back pew, and as the the pastor is doing his sermon, when he makes good points, I'm like, yeah, amen, <laughs> right? I'm just, that's sort of how black mm-hmm. blackness is, right? Even in the most, you know, highbrow of church experiences, you know, the sermon is not a lecture, it's a conversation, yeah. mm-hmm. right? And so when the pastor is saying something that you agree with or that you don't agree with or that hurts a little bit, you respond to it, right? So he would say something and I'd be like, yeah, mm-hmm. amen, that's right, right? Every single time that I did it, there'd be rows of people who would turn around and look at me. And I'm not exaggerating, like rows mm. of people who would turn around and look. And I'm not being obnoxious. I'm literally saying amen, mm-hmm. right, out loud. And I said, okay, well, this is not going to work. Mm. This is not going to work. I grabbed my coffee cup. I grabbed my Bible, literally in the middle of service. I stood up and I walked all the way down to the front row and sat back down 
and continued. Amen. Mm. That's right. Uh huh. I was like, because you asked me to come here. Mm. You asked me to come and be a part of you. So I'm not going to change. Mm. And I'm and what I'm doing is not disruptive to who you are. So you're going to have to get used to me. But you're going to get you're going to have to get used to me while you sit behind me because I'm not going to endure you staring at mm. me for me being me. And I think that's a huge part of what it means to don't just do the diversity work where you can check off boxes that those people are in your congregations. Do the diversity work where those people can come to your congregations and be free to be who they actually are. That's the harder work than than just checking off that you hired somebody of color or whatever. But and I and I'm not saying this from any arrogant or hubris place. I know that my church um, has changed because I've been there, mm. right? And I'm not saying that. I'm really not. I, I can't convince you that I'm not being cocky or whatever, but I know that my church has changed because because my leaders did the work of giving me voice mm. in my congregation, mm. not just not just using me to check off one of their diversity mm-hmm. boxes. I know my church is a more inclusive place and is a place that that more values um, different voices now than it ever has because my church did that mm-hmm. work. My church will never be more than probably 10% black. Yeah. It probably won't. I mean, we're in Portland. Yeah. It probably will never be more than 10% black. But the white people that are there are better um, recipients of difference now mm. than they were, mm-hmm. and that's important. No matter no matter whether your numbers change or not. I saw this quote that mm-hmm. I love, and it's actually what we named this series after. And it was saying that this is not a moment in history, but it's a movement. Mm-hmm. And so, what is your charge to Christians as mm-hmm. we walk forward into this movement? Woo, my charge. You know what? I've come to this place. My simple charge is to get back to Acts chapter 2. Actually, Acts 1 and 2. My, that's, this is really my simple charge. It's, and it's not so simple, right? And I, I'll try not to sermonize right here, okay? So we all know, like, Acts chapter 2 is where the church is credited to have started, mm-hmm. right? That's the whole Pentecost Sunday thing. It's where, you know, this miraculous thing where the Holy Ghost comes and, you know, descends on us all and, and, and that first miracle happens, right? The thing that's so crazy and beautiful and, and mind-blowing to me is in Acts chapter 1, we hear the last words of Jesus where Jesus says, hey, wait here together. I'm going to send you a gift. Wait here. Um, receive that gift together. And then you can go out into all the world mm-hmm. like this movement. Right. Once you get this gift together, then you can go out into all the world and 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 be witnesses, do the work of the church. Right. He says, but you got to wait here together, receive this gift. The first thing that happens is as soon as Jesus says that somebody says, are you going to restore power mm. to Israel? Is that what you're going to do? Are you going to restore power? Jesus is talking about waiting here for something that's a gift from heaven. So something that's so transcendent. And yet what people want to fixate and focus on is who's in charge. Like who gets to be mm. in charge? Who gets to have power, right? Are you going to restore power to these people or to those people? And Jesus is like, I'm not even talking about earthly power at this point. I'm not even talking about your systems. I'm saying wait here for something that is so beyond, mm. right? And then what happens in, in chapter 2 
is the Holy Spirit comes, and what it says is, in that moment, all of us uh, began to speak in the tongues of other people. Not stuttering, not 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 tripping over our words, but fluidly mm. speaking in the voice and in the language of someone else. Now, we've, we've mystified that, like, you know, the heavenly language and something that nobody understands and all that stuff. But in truth, Acts chapter 2 says we actually started speaking in the voice of the other. Which to me says something really simple. It says the first miracle of the Holy Spirit, the first gift of the Holy Spirit onto the church was the ability, the divine ability to hear from each other our own story, Mm. our own voice, our own language, our own culture. That means when I looked at you, I didn't, I I, might have looked at you and saw that you looked different and, and were different, but what I heard from you was a sympathy for who I am. Mm. What I heard from you was an acknowledgement of who I am. What I heard from you was a beauty of my language, of my culture, a, a respect of my language and my culture and what's beautiful to me. What I heard from you was myself. And what the ch- <laughs> what the church has done is we've created this way that we're all supposed to be the same, and then we judge each other based on how close we can get to that sameness when the truth is Acts chapter 2 says no stay different Mm. and just respect each other as differently as you are carry the kingdom be witnesses of Christ in your differentness in your uniqueness hearing each other's story go be witnesses with that the goal has never been Babel the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11 the goal has never been for you all to stay in one place sound and look the same Mm. That has never been the goal. The goal has always been to know what it means to be Christ followers in your different and unique ways and then go out and do that. And so if I were to challenge the church with anything right now, it would be two things. It would be that. One is to that we need to be different altogether, right, and, and that we are to reflect Christ in that way. The second thing I would challenge the church is um, to accept its complicitness in some of the systems that have uh, created and caused people harm mm. throughout history. Accept it. I'm not saying I'm not saying live with guilt and shame and the burden of those things. I'm saying live with the responsibility to do justice. Live with the responsibility to restore Tamar's good name. Mm. Live with that responsibility. I'm not. I'm not saying accept your your complicitness in past injustices so that you can just walk around here feeling bad about yourself. I'm saying accept it because when you accept it, you can then say, "I will never. I will never be a contributor to that. Not only will I not be a contributor to it, I will be a healer mm. of it." So those would be my two challenges to the church. Wow. Before we end, I can't believe I just feel like I just <laughs> learned so much. But before we end, do you have any resources you would recommend to those in the church who Mm -hmm. want to better understand why social justice and racism specifically are important areas for churches to address? Um, Well, I hate, well, I don't hate um, to do this. (laughs) I was going to say, I hate to just, you know, bang my own drum, but I'm going to. And I don't hate it because I think God has, has gifted it. But I created a thing called the Art of Tough Talk about five years ago. It was actually a response to the Mike Brown case out of Ferguson, Missouri. And it's an interactive tool that utilizes the arts to help people have conversations. We've all sat in plenty of lectures or 
watch plenty of TV interviews where it was sort of you just kind of consume other people's um, words or conversation. And so the Art of Tough Talks is a tool that I created with some folks, some friends of mine to help people actually learn how to process their own thoughts and and to start talking about this. So that would be one thing I would encourage people to look into, um, theartoftoughtalks.com. Um, there's, there's plenty of books and stuff out right now that I think people are getting hip to between, you know, white fragility and how to be an anti-racist, to the new Jim Crow, to, um, I forget Dominique Gilliard's book and title. It's about mass incarceration and, and just about about that kind of stuff. Bakari Sellers is a is a person that I, I listen to a lot and read his work. So there's plenty of people. I mean, there's plenty of, of resources you can go look into. Um, but I would start... Those are a few that I would that I would throw out there. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you want to learn more about Can I Say That? Our guests on the show or submit questions and participate in polls, please join us on Instagram at Can I Say That Show. We love interacting with our audience and hearing how this show has affected, changed, and challenged you in your own walk. So please join us.